0: It's Friday, June 5th. It's been a huge week in Montana and across the world and we appreciate you spending a bit of time with MCV Cast. I'm Aaron Murphy, Executive Director of Montana Conservation Voters, along with Deputy Director Whitney Tani and Political Director Jake Brown. <laughs> Today we'll be addressing the worldwide demand for racial justice and equity, a movement that has boiled over following last week's murder of George Floyd under the knee of a white police officer. The sounds you are hearing now are from Lafayette Square on Monday in Washington, D.C., when federal officers removed protesters from the park they own using tear gas, rubber bullets, and brutal physical force. Lafayette Square, by the way, is a national park, which means it's open to everyone who wants to peacefully exercise their First Amendment rights. And that's what was happening when Donald Trump decided to visit historic St. John's Episcopal Church, uninvited and unannounced, for a photo op.
1: Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Robin Saha, an associate professor of environmental studies and climate change studies at the University of Montana, Robin is a leading environmental justice scholar and an activist. He's also the president of the board of directors for the Montana Conservation Voters Education Fund.
0: Yeah, Whitney, we'll be talking to Robin about why racial justice and equity is linked closely with the conservation voter movement. While it may be obvious to some, others find it helpful to understand why environmental justice is racial justice. I've learned a lot from Robin over the past year, and we look forward to having him help us unpack what's happening and what you can do to affect important change wherever you live. Of course, it's been a big week for politics in Montana, too, with another primary election in the rearview mirror. That means it was a very big week for Jake Brown. Before we get to today's discussion, Jake, what are the key takeaways from Tuesday?
2: Well, first of all, a record number of Montanans made their voices heard last Tuesday in the primary election. And fortunately for us, that means 100% of MCV-endorsed candidates also made it through their primary elections and will advance to the general election in November. Here's a quick rundown on a little preview for the general election ballot. In the race for the U.S. Senate, Governor Steve Bullock will face Montana's junior Senator Steve Daines, uh, who actually led the charge on the largest reduction of protected public lands in Montana history.
1: Senator Daines is getting a lot of credit these days for the Land and Water Conservation Fund finally having some momentum and looking like it's going to be permanently and fully funded. As a reminder, Senator Tester is also an original co-sponsor of that legislation, But just working on LWCF doesn't make you a public lands champion. Here at MCV, we expect more. So if Senator Danes wants to be a champion for our public lands, he shouldn't be supporting a public lands foe heading up the Bureau of Land Management. He shouldn't be leading efforts to release wilderness study areas without the consultation of Montanans. And he most certainly shouldn't be writing letters asking the Interior Department to stop collecting the oil and gas royalties that make the Land and Water Conservation Fund possible.
2: Yeah, that's right, Whitney. In the race for Montana's only seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, former state legislator Kathleen Williams will face failed 2018 U.S. Senate candidate Matt Rosendale, a Maryland transplant who has repeatedly called for the transfer and sale of our public lands.
0: Let's not forget Matt Rosendale plus Montana politics equals a game of musical chairs. He first ran for Congress back in 2014, losing in the primary election to Ryan Zinke. So Rosendale ran for state auditor in 2016 and won, but just a few short months into his four-year term, he announced his run for the U.S. Senate against Senator Tester, and as Jake mentioned, despite getting Donald Trump to visit Montana four times on taxpayer dime, he lost. Maybe that's because Matt Rosendale skipped a debate, misused taxpayer dollars, and had to defend his support for selling off public lands, and had a pretty tough time even trying to pronounce the name of our state. Now he's running for Congress again. Rafe
2: Graybill, Bullock's chief legal counsel, won his competitive primary and will face former state representative Austin Knutson in the race for Montana Attorney General. Knutson and his family made waves in northeastern Montana when they sued to block access to a public veterans park in Culbertson. Murph, Whitney, does that remind you of uh, anyone else? (laughs) State legislator Shane Morgeau won his primary election and will go up against Troy Downing in the state auditor's race. Um, Downing was actually convicted of poaching when he lied about his California residency to buy in-state hunting license. Candidate for Secretary of State Bryce Bennett didn't have a primary opponent, but we did learn who his general election opponent will be. Christy Jacobson won the six-way competitive Republican primary and will face Bennett in the general. Christy is the chief of staff for Corey Stapleton, so it'll be interesting to watch how she talks about some of the blunders that have happened in that office in the past four years. Monica Trinnell, candidate for, public, for the Public Service Commission District 4 won her contested primary and will be up against a familiar name to the conservation world, Jennifer Fielder. Fielder has been one of the most outspoken proponents of a federal lands transfer and is the CEO of the American Lands Council.
1: Let it also be clear that although Fielder may have worked on some net metering legislation in the state capitol as a legislator, she does not have a background in energy. In fact, this is so out of left field, or should I say right field, that it looks suspiciously like she is trying to just get the PSC salary so she can continue to visit her friend in Texas, country singer Randy Travis. Remember how she got in trouble this last session because she missed a full week of votes and didn't hold hearings as the chair of the Fish and Game Committee for most of the month of January because of a trip down south to visit her friend. That may sound like I'm picking on her, but Montana's legislative session is only 90 days, so missing a week matters.
2: Yeah, that's right, Whitney. Um, I think generally we're excited that all of our endorsed candidates won their primaries, but it's also just worth noting that every single one of their opponents has an absolutely terrible record on public lands and conservation. This is, without a doubt, one of the most anti-public lands and anti-access tickets that we've seen. And I think we're gonna have a lot of work cut out for us in order to make sure the right candidates win in November.
0: We launched MCVCast in early April of 2020. We realized Montanans weren't hearing important developments affecting conservation amid the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, we're coming to terms with another defining story impacting all of us, the call for real systemic change and injustice following a police officer's murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis.
3: Because just like at one era... We had to fight slavery, another era we had to fight Jim Crow, another era we dealt with voting rights. This is the era to deal with policing and criminal justice. We need to go back to Washington and stand up black, white, Latino, Arab in the shadows of Lincoln and tell them this is the time to stop this.
0: Of course, we are hearing that outcry in cities across Montana, Bozeman, Missoula, Billings, Helena, Haver. Thousands of Montanans are raising their voices to demand justice. They don't want talking points. They don't want thoughts and prayers. They're not turning to the echo chamber of Twitter and Facebook. They're demanding real justice. To all who are courageously being part of this change, we at MCV see you. We are bearing witness to all of it, and we are with you. Today's guest, Dr. Robin Saha. Robin is an expert in environmental justice and the president of the MCV Education Fund's board of directors. Welcome, Robin. Thank you, Aaron. It's nice to be here. Nice to have you. So before we begin, I'd like to rewind back to last October when all of us were sitting in a hotel conference room discussing MCV's priorities. Robin, I'd like to read a bit from our new strategic plan. It says, and I'm quoting, we commit to working with diverse partners and actively inviting people to work, always striving for racial justice, equity and inclusion, and learning from each other in an environment that does not perpetuate or tolerate injustice of any kind. What does that mean?
4: I think it means that we're that as MCV as an organization is, is really striving to to think about the organization's role in the larger problems in society. And how how we can address them through our work, through our mission, and um, that means that that thinking about conservation issues and and how they interface with racial justice, with with fairness, with uh, ideas of inclusion, of, of bringing, creating a bigger uh, conservation tent, if you will, those are all those are all part of what. Conservation organizations around the country are, are thinking about and, and beginning to do. And this is an important step for, for organizations like MCV to really recognize how their work uh, dovetails with uh, a larger racial justice issues and recognizes also the diversity that we have in our society and, and that we're really trying to bring in more people to the conservation movement. And that really has a, um, potential to to build power and to to make us more effective in everything we
0: do Robin could you tell us a little bit more about your background what drew you to this work in the first place
4: sure well you know I was uh, I grew up in the and in the, in the 60s and uh, you know so I was in Cleveland I grew up in Cleveland there were race riots um, one two blocks away from us in the Huff area of Cleveland and um, you know, so sort of. I mean, as a child, but but seeing the civil rights movement, I think instilled in me this idea that we can have a more fair and just society. And so, throughout my education, I found ways to learn about and to do things that that can work towards that goal. Um, first, uh, after college, uh, working in a Catholic um, youth organization uh, residential camp in the San Francisco Bay Area that brought kids of all different socioeconomic background, racial and ethnic backgrounds together into a community, a learning community. And then I think the pivotal moment for me, though, was going to graduate school at the University of Michigan where um, in the early 90s, where there was just a lot of excitement and a lot of faculty and students that were interested in environmental justice. And uh, the environmental justice movement had, you know, taken off and was really having an effect on uh, government agencies and and starting to make those types of changes that you know protesters wanted to see. It's it's there's of course been a tremendous backlash against that and and some 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 stalling of the environmental justice movement. But being around other folks that are learning about researching actively engaged as activists in environmental justice um, was really my um, training grounds, if you will, for the work I do today.
1: There's a lot that's been happening across our country, in particular, kind of instigated lately by this George Floyd killing, um, and it's creating a lot of unrest. We mentioned, I guess, one of the things at the top of the show that Racial justice and environmental justice are closely linked, um, and so how would you take the current events that are going on right now and connect that with environmental justice?
4: Great question. You know, I was I was thinking Whitney and, and Aaron too that you know some some of this um, this tinderbox, if you will, um, you know, actually stemmed from the COVID outbreak and the recognition that. Uh, African-Americans especially um, have been hit hard, really hard by the virus. And I I think that recognition and the decades and decades of police brutality and um, a criminal justice system that um, has uh, huge percentages of African-American men in jail for often minor crimes that, you know, whites generally don't go to jail for. has has really created this sense that things need to need to change. Things need to be uh, reformed. And the real thing that these protesters are saying is is that you know it's not just about uh, George Floyd. It's it's about a pattern of um, mistreatment. It's a, it's about a, a pattern of discrimination in in the justice system and policing. And and beyond that, they're saying that that's just a part of a larger problem of systemic discrimination. And we're, we're talking about um, whole systems of, of well, basically structural disadvantage. So this, this idea that the, the way society is set up our policies, our laws, the way they're carried out is unfair to, to people of color in particular, uh, poor people as well. And they're saying that that's what needs to be changed. And that, when we're talking about systemic discrimination, we're talking about disadvantages uh, in education, in housing, uh, disparities in health care, in, healthcare, in uh, wealth, and, and so on. And those have a cumulative effect on people. They not only uh, affect people's life chances, their quality of life, their health, They prevent people from often getting out of those situations despite their best efforts. And part of the system, too, is the environmental system, the environmental regulatory system, our preparedness and response to disasters, our um, handling of pollution, our access to public lands. And so all of those um, environmental issues and conservation issues that we care about also are um, systemically disadvantaged People of color and low-income communities, and and that's exactly what the environmental justice movement has uh, brought to light and and fights against. It's also important to look at the history because systemic discrimination is not something that just you know showed up today. It's something that's been around you know since the founding of the country. Before the founding of the country, you know, with slavery, with um, you know, lack of citizenship for for Native Americans, um, lack of ability to vote. You know, we could we could add women uh, discrimination against women to to some of these issues as well. So, if we want to build a, a more fair and just society, we need to, to confront systemic discrimination. And you know, in our wheelhouse, conservation and environmental issues are part of those, and and they do have a unjust aspect to them as well. That that. Um, is important to take a look at and and think about and work on.
0: Robin, you you sent us a clip of Robert Bullard uh, this week, and I listened to it. It's fascinating. I'm about to play it, but wondering if you might set that up uh, for us just a little bit before we hear from him.
4: Well, uh, Bob Bullard is uh, probably the best known scholar activist slash activist uh, in the environmental justice movement. He's actually been called the godfather of the environmental justice movement, And his scholarship has uh, also led to a lot of governmental attention to the issue and action on the issue.
3: There are lots of uh, struggles around pesticides and farm workers, around uh, communities that are struggling uh, against highways being built through their communities and with uh, petrochemical plants, etc. But it was not until Warren County, where that PCB landfill, that toxic waste uh, landfill, was placed in the middle of this a uh, predominantly black uh, county, uh, and residents in that community said no. And we started to get people from all over the country, uh, led by uh, Reverend Ben Chavez, who at the time was the um, executive director of the Commission for Racial Justice at the United Church of Christ, that began to galvanize people and attracted lots of folks to Warren County and to protest that landfill and to talk about this whole idea of environmental injustice and environmental racism. And once we started to see people actually going to jail, over 500 people went to jail over the siting of that landfill. So it became not just an environmental issue, it became a civil rights issue and a human rights issue. And that's, that's when you start to get uh, people from all over the country, uh, African Americans and Latinos and Native Americans, and Asian Pacific Islanders, to start to think about this whole idea of uh, everybody has a right to live in an, an environment that is free from pollution, and no community should be should become the dumping grounds.
2: And so, Robin, you earlier mentioned kind of the role of um, the conservation's movements' um, role in participating in kind of this unjust system that we have. You know, I just I wanted to acknowledge that our conservation movement is heavily dominated by white people. And I think there's no question that we as a movement benefit from systemic racism. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of speak to the fact that our movement is so heavily dominated by white people and just how we can uh, work to be more inclusive of people of color in our space.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's been an issue that's been been on the table, you know, called out uh, since the early 1990s. And it, it's it's not just here in Montana, it's it's around the country. And in Montana, it's, we're a predominantly white state. So we're in a little bit of a different situation here. Yet we do have a fair bit of diversity in Montana, if you think about you know, the state being about 7% American Indian. So in Montana, I think that diversifying the movement means collaborating with uh, means partnering with uh, understanding the issues in Indian country and uh, supporting and, and working with uh, tribes on conservation environmental issues that matter to them. And, and it turns out actually, that we share many of the same concerns and interests. And, you know, you take things like pipelines um, you know, the, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe had tremendous support, from around the country, from climate justice act- activists. We have issues here in Montana with the Keystone Pipeline route running right next to Fort Peck Reservation and and threatening their water supply if there were to be a spill. Um, there's that. There's also the issue of uh, the man camps going in and all the social problems and and risks to tribal communities that, that go along with them. And, you know, with the attention to missing and murdered indigenous people, women in particular, there are those, those potential impacts that come with the construction of the pipeline, not to mention, you know, the, the risks of a spill. You know, and nmcv has been, been really involved in uh, trying to build those dialogues with uh, the Fort Peck uh, Indian community that's just you know one example of of something that um, concerns all of us and the clean water that that we and communities around Montana rely on. The conservation community, including MCV, um, especially MCV, have been supportive of the Salish, Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes' bid to have the National Bison Range uh, restored to their um, their management. And so, uh, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, I guess what I'm saying is we shouldn't necessarily say we're not doing the work or that we're, uh, because we're, uh, you know, predominantly white, that, that we're not attuned to those issues and we don't work on them because we certainly do. But, you know, that doesn't mean we can't, can't do a better job.
1: So kind of following up on that uh, in particular, because I think there is an opportunity here what should white people who want to be a part of the change be mindful of and making sure that we're not moving backwards? I
4: think that it's important to be mindful that, uh, you know, the the issues that tribal communities face, that low-income communities, I mean, even even take Butte, you know, or, or Anaconda, white, white communities, working class white communities that are are dealing with contamination and, and not getting a adequate cleanups, they they are organizing themselves. They are um, speaking out in ways that they hadn't in you know 10, 20 years ago. You know, it's 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 one thing to expect people to support other people's issues, but I think when we um, when communities get active on their own issues, that can then Provide more um, momentum or or capacity to to continue that work to create a you know a cleaner, healthier, safer environment across the state and more solidarity with other communities. And the other thing I would add too is that we're raised with and we we hear about when we grow up different negative portrayals of Native Americans of other people of colors and those can get instilled in one's consciousness in very subtle ways that can almost be unconscious it's not just about trying to understand other people it's often about understanding yourself and your own viewpoints and you know judgments that may may or may not have merit
1: the atlantic had a piece from general mattis this week which is trump's former defense secretary um, where he denounced the president um, for creating more division in our country than any president that he has known prior. How do you think that the outdoors can bring people together?
4: I think the outdoors is um, is really a great equalizer in some ways. That you know we we all have uh, the chance to experience it to to experience the renewal and the the joy that the the physical uh, you know exertion if you will or the or just simply the the contemplation and the connection to um, to the earth to, to to places when we provide opportunities to people for people to get outdoors it is it's almost like a uni- a universal good right not everybody has the opportunity to to get outdoors to uh, to recreate. And Montana certainly has tremendous opportunities for outdoor recreation. And there are, there are folks that, that really have a hard time with um, taking advantage of that, you know, who are, say, single parents or working multiple jobs. So we need to be thinking, you know, not just about uh, continuing to provide access to um, wild places and, and places outside the city, but also places within our own communities. And so to, to really bring people together, we need to have different ways people can get out there. One thing that's really exciting about Missoula is, is that there is an ordinance that there must be a city park within half a mile of, of every residence in, in Missoula so you can get to them. And so when we start thinking about you know outdoor recreation and access from a racial justice lens or or economic justice lens, we we need to think about um, our urban parks and and providing recreational opportunities in our in our cities and, and our rural areas too. I guess I'm sort of curious, Whitney where what you were thinking about that too. I'd like to know what your thoughts are.
1: Yeah, I think that why I'm super. Passionate about our public lands is because of the accessibility. Um, I think that we saw a lot of that happening um, when President Obama was in office through national monument designations. And what was really neat about that, too, was that he was designating places that people of all different backgrounds Mm -hmm. really cared about. But a lot of the time, there was kind of some outdoor element to it. Not always, but. I think it was a way of honoring kind of that history um, and bringing people together to understand further about kind of the trauma of what has happened in this country um, and how to deepen our understanding and also be aware that we do have white fragility.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, it's it's so important that the federal government adequately fund our public lands, our national parks, one thing we we do need to as a conservation movement need to be working on and aware of is that fewer people are are getting outdoors and and camping and hunting and recreating i don't know if that's the case in montana but as a nation as a whole when you don't have that a contact with nature you know there's less of a tendency to invest in protecting nature as well
0: robin as we continue to w- watch what's happening around the state and country and world uh, with these protests and this call for change. Any closing thoughts on your end on what we can do, what we should keep in mind, and how the conservation voter movement is linked with racial justice and equity?
4: It's worthwhile thinking about that the United States will be majority-minority in less than 25 years, and there are several states that are already Uh, majority minority, if you will. So this growing diversity really requires that the conservation movement be attuned to the conservation issues and concerns of of a diverse electorate, increasingly diverse electorate. And it's actually a tremendous opportunity to build a broader constituency for conservation and an opportunity to build power and gaining support for and building a broader conservation movement, creating a bigger conservation movement or a bigger tent, if you will, uh, definitely requires understanding the experiences and concerns, and and in many cases the historical injustices uh, of people of color. You know their viewpoints are very much rooted in their historical experiences of injustice. So in being more successful in the future, uh, conservationists, conservation organizations like MCV uh, r- will really do well to. Um, to carry out those, those statements like the one we started with. And they'll, they'll find success in building support for conservation priorities by bringing in those voices that have uh, not always been heard or listened to.
0: Dr. Robin Saha is Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and Climate Change Studies at the University of Montana. Robin, thank you for your leadership and for your scholarship and for your time with us today.
4: You bet, Aaron. It's been great being with all three of you.
0: Again, Dr. Robin Saha is president of the MCV Education Fund's Board of Directors. The MCV Education Fund is a nonpartisan 501c3 nonprofit organization, and it's worth reading its mission statement. The Montana Conservation Voters Education Fund engages all Montanans and their communities by empowering them to protect our clean air, clean water, public lands, and voting rights through education, mobilization, and the power of grassroots advocacy. As always, we cover conservation
2: headlines on our podcast, and to make sure important news doesn't get overlooked, this week we're tracking a few stories, like the purchase of 97 acres surrounding Sea Ben White Fishing Access Site on the West Fork of the Bitterroot. This purchase will allow for access to adjacent Forest Service land, increased amenities at the access site, and will also prevent the land around the fishing site from being developed into a subdivision. This purchase will allow for access to adjacent Forest Service land, increased amenities at the access site, and will also prevent the land around the fishing site from being developed into a subdivision. This purchase by the state of Montana was made possible by a private landowner and is a great example of conservation and the public interest. The purchase will be in front of the land board for final approval in the coming months. Thanks to the landowner and everybody else who made this purchase possible.
0: In a late development, President Trump on Thursday quietly signed an executive order to waive environmental regulations to speed up controversial projects like mines, highways, and even pipelines. The reason, he says, is because of the current economic emergency, those are his words, brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a bit of hopeful news as the Trump administration continues to disregard decades of bipartisan laws to protect our clean air, our clean water, and our public health, Developers are expected to have to prove that they are indeed operating in an emergency, something courts get the final say on.
2: Another blow was dealt to the controversial Keystone XL pipeline as the Ninth Circuit Appellate Court ruled against the Trump administration, which had requested a stay order on the earlier decision saying that the Army Corps of Engineers had failed to consider impacts on endangered species like pallid sturgeon. The administration requested a stay on the order citing A pause on the permit program could delay the construction of pipelines needed to deliver important fuel to some critical destinations such as power plants. The two judges ruled against the government and have continued to block the pipeline for now. We'll continue to track this story for our listeners and members in the future.
1: In better news, Glacier National Park will partially open for recreational access on Monday, June 8th. The Westgate entrance will be open until 4.40 p.m. each day so visitors can access Apgar and the Going to the Sun Road.
0: This is episode 10 of MCV Cast, which means this show wraps up our very first season. We will be back next week with a bonus episode featuring former Governor Brian Schweitzer. He's always good for some unique insight, and in a couple of weeks, we'll be back with season two. A huge thanks to all of our listeners and financial supporters for making this podcast a success. If you missed an episode, all 10 episodes are available on our brand new website, mtvoters.org. Just click on the podcast button and you'll find links to every episode or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell your friends about the show. Give us a like or a review. All of it helps us out.
1: As we get ready for Season 2, we'll have plenty of news to share with you via our social media channels. Please find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at MTVoters, which is M-T-V-O-T-E-R-S. We're also on YouTube.
2: I also just want to give a shout out to all of the MCV members who make our organization a success, and especially to the ones who have contributed to our political work through the MCV Action Fund. Thank you. And if you haven't contributed recently, we
0: invite you to do so at mtvoters.org slash donate. For Whitney Taney and Jake Brown, I'm Aaron Murphy. We'll see you very soon. And we'll leave you this week with MCV's endorsed candidate for governor, Lieutenant Governor Mike Cooney, addressing voters with his running mate Casey Schreiner after his victory on Tuesday night. Uh, We need to prepare ourselves to run against Greg Gianforte because we know that his vision of Montana is not the vision Montanans want. And it's our job to make sure that that doesn't happen.